John 5, we're going to be in this morning, picking up back in the wonderful book of John. It's been a while now since we've been in John. We left off in verse 29 of chapter 5 a few weeks ago. And since then, if you guys recall, we had our brother Jess Arns from Grace. He came and preached out of the book of Revelation. It's awesome. And then we had our Christmas service last week. So for those of you who are expecting Christmas service today, just pretend like this is that uh, in First Peter. And so we kind of got to get our minds back into the context here of where we're at in the book of John. So let me pray for us before we get started today. Father, thank you for blessing us with a wonderful season of rejoicing and celebrating your eternal and glorious work of redemption, salvation through sending your Son to be a substitute for us. Thank you, Father, that we've enjoyed such sweet fellowship with one another and with you. We thank you that you have made that possible through the life and death of your Son and his rising from the grave. We give you thanks again this morning. Though we are tired, Lord, and ready for rest, God, we thank you that uh, though rest can be difficult to find in this life, we have eternal rest in you, and we take great comfort in that. We ask that you would speak mightily through your word this morning, God, that you would bless our offering as we give to you, Father, that you would multiply it and bring forth fruit for your glory here at Calvary Napa. We would continue to see souls come to Christ and be restored and made new and brought to life for your glory and for your namesake. So we commit this time to you, Father. We gather in your name and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, in the bigger scheme of things here in the book of John, particularly in our passage, what we see is continually, what we're going to be seeing is the Jewish rejection of their Messiah. The leadership questioning Jesus' authority, bringing accusations against him, and as we saw in verse 18, many, many moons ago, now desiring to put him to death for the claims that he is continually making about himself. And this is going to continue, as we know, throughout the rest of John's gospel, where we have these repeated instances of Jesus making divine messianic claims about himself and the Jewish leadership attempting to put him on trial at every opportunity. They want to question him. They want to challenge him. They want to catch him. They want to trip him up. They want to arrest him, and they want to put him to death. And so it's made very clear that the things he was saying about himself must either be true or he was indeed a blasphemer who was worthy of death. It's a black and white situation. There's no middle ground to take. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord, as C.S. Lewis said so famously. He cannot be both. He cannot be a lunatic Lord, and he cannot be a liar Lord. He can be a lunatic liar, uh, but if he is the Lord, he is the Lord. And so for us, the moral teacher theory that is so popular in our day uh, goes completely out the window. So if Jesus claimed to be nothing more than a nice guy with some teachings about love for one another, then the Jews would not have been so vehemently set on killing him, 
right? We don't just kill guys who come with a nice teaching about loving your neighbor. He was saying something that was extremely offensive to them. And they're going to come against him over and over. And in his responses, as we'll see, he pulls no punches whatsoever. You'll notice if you observe carefully the way that Jesus speaks with people in his earthly ministry, there is a very stark difference in his approach depending on whom he is speaking with. It seems like sometimes we get this Jesus who is so gentle and patient and loving with the broken that he's speaking with, and at other times it seems like he is just absolutely ruthless with his words. And there's good reason for that. So the saying goes, law to the proud and grace to the humble. Jesus responds to those who are lowly in spirit with gentleness and compassion. To those that know they are not good, he speaks words of life. He gives them grace and truth. But to the self-righteous, to those who see no need for a Savior, to the proud, to the accuser, he consistently confronts them head on and he tells them exactly what is in their hearts. Most of his most harsh-sounding statements are directed toward the blindly arrogant and self-righteous of his day. So you'll notice this if you pay attention to his audience. He is never harsh with the lowly. He is harsh with the arrogant, harsh with the self-righteous. And so, while it may seem to us like the Jews are constantly putting Jesus on trial, putting him to the test, questioning him, the reality is, very ironically, that there is no one who can put him on trial. In fact, it is he who has come to put them on trial, right? He has all authority, and he will be the judge of the world. And such is the arrogance of his opponents that they believe they can put God on trial. The one who is sitting in the defendant's seat, who is on trial facing the death penalty, wants to question the authority of the judge and say, hey, what about this guy over here sitting there with the, the gavel, you know? They want to question him and they want to flip the rolls around and sentence the judge to death. This is the arrogance and the twisted mindedness of man. And friends, there will be no finger pointing this morning because at one point or another, chances are we have all stood in the place of the scoffer. We have all stood in the place of the mocker. We've all stood in the place of the accuser and tried to put God on trial. Audacious we are, and yet he has shown great mercy. And so our text today continues this kind of courtroom setting, this courtroom motif. It centers around testimony and witness. And he's going to bring multiple witnesses to the stand, so to speak, to affirm his case. And we'll probably take this week and next week to finish the rest of the chapter. Um, and this legal language that we see here is crucial in understanding the Scriptures and our relationship to God. It's used frequently to illustrate key points and key realities, right? We see repeated terms like judgment, guilty, justified, penalty, condemned, freedom, forgiven, 
so on and so forth. On and on and on this legal language goes. So pay close attention to the usage of these terms as we move through the text. So last time we covered, if you remember, the authority of the Son to give life, to execute judgment, and His divine partnership with the Father in ministry. And today we continue in that same discourse. There's no break in what he's saying. Um, And it begins with verse 30 being somewhat of a summary of the last portion of this chapter. So we'll start there. John 5, verse 30 says this, Jesus speaking, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, to clarify, what Jesus is not saying here is that he wants to do one thing and God the Father wants to do something else, and so Jesus can't really do what he wants to do, right? He's not a 16-year-old know-it-all living with his dad, and he says, well, I want to do this, but my dad says I have to do this. He is not saying that at all. What he is saying is that when he speaks When he acts, when he judges, when he proclaims, he is doing so as one God. There is no contest of will within the triune Godhead. Jesus is inseparable from the Father in mind and will and heart in his divinity. Because God is the very standard by which all other things must be compared, right? Because he alone is good, he alone defines what is good. Because he alone is perfectly just, he alone defines justice. And so everything that proceeds from God must necessarily be good and just, or he would not be God. For if there was a higher standard of goodness and justice, like perhaps our own standard, then that being would stand in the place of God. But there is no higher standard. As we know and affirm, there is no other. There is no God. And so what God says must be right and true. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I am no mere man acting on my own accord. I'm not just appealing to God's suggestions or input and weighing them and making my own independent decisions. He's saying, my will is not at all separate from the one who sent me. I do what the Father does. I speak what the Father speaks. I judge as the Father judges. My will is his will. So when Jesus speaks, he speaks with the full authority of heaven. And yet men have the audacity to question him and to put him on trial. And he is so gracious and he is so patient with mankind that he even concedes to their questioning. And he reasons with them. He reasons with us according to our own thinking. That's what he does here in verse 31. Read with me. If I alone bear witness about myself, he says, my testimony is not true. So this statement right here is going to start us on a series of witnesses to Jesus' identity and authority. And again, to repeat, what he is not saying is, my word isn't trustworthy, or that his word is not divinely authoritative. 
as if he is in need of men to verify his claims about himself. It's none of that that he's saying. We would do well, guys, to simply take him at his word, amen? But man, is it so difficult to do. How often do we stoop to the foolishness of questioning God in order to justify our disobedience, our desire to go after things that we know we ought not to? How sweet life would be if we could just listen and obey. That is my prayer for myself and my prayer for all of you, that we would just listen and obey and stop trying to put God's ways on trial. But nevertheless, He graciously ministers to our minds. He ministers to our minds as he does here with the Jews by placing himself, God in the flesh, he places himself under the same requirements of the law that they were. Under the law of Moses, no man is a fair witness to his own case alone, right? You can't stand there and say, hey, this is my perception of the story. Take my word for it, right? That would be silly. Our God is truly a God of truth. He's truly a God of justice. And so we see this principle reflected in His law. You guys may know Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against any person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Right? I can't just say, hey, Javon tried to kill me last night. It's like, well, says who, you know? Where's the witnesses? Where's the proof? I couldn't help myself, brother. I'm sorry. (laughs) Where's the proof? Where is your witness? You can't just make charges and accusations out of nowhere. And likewise, someone needs a defendant, a witness to defend himself as well. And so Jesus says this. He says, my word is not sufficient for you. Okay. Well, in accordance with the law, here are my witnesses. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What he's referring to here is the witness of the Father, whose witness, like I said, is absolutely and necessarily true. God cannot lie. He is truth, whose witness we will get more fully into next week. But first, Jesus takes a detour to speak on another witness that affirms his testimony and condemns the Jews for their unbelief, and that is the testimony of John the Baptist, a man that we studied at length in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So Jesus says this about John, verse 33. He says, You sent to John, speaking to the Jews, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So John the Baptist came, as chapter 1 says, as a witness, to bear witness about the light of the world, to bear witness to the coming Christ that all might believe through him. And John, as we know, was clearly perceived as a prophet, 
People came out to see this guy and said, who is this prophet? He was recognized as a prophet. He had the authority of the office of prophet, and he testified about himself. He said, I am not the Messiah. I am not the guy. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John was the one preparing the way for the Savior, And John was one whom the Jews recognized had a prophetic ministry. And so they sent this delegation to him. You guys remember this? They sent to John, they sent to him to hear his testimony. What do you have to say about yourself? Who are you? And if you remember Pastor Rob teaching through chapter 1, what did John the Baptist do? He defers all attention and focus away from himself godly man that he was. He defers attention away from himself and on to the one who is coming alone. He came to bear witness to Christ that he might be revealed. Right? John came to decrease that Christ would increase. And what does he exclaim when he sees Jesus coming? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one This is the one. And even John himself bears witness that the Father bore witness to him. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water. Who sent John the Baptist? The Father. The Father said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says in verse 31, of chapter 1, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus is confronting the Jews with John's own testimony. He says, hey, was John a prophet or not? Did he speak from God or not? And if he did, what did he have to say about me? He says, I tell you, I'm the Son of God. John says, I'm the Son of God. So was he or was he not a prophet? And if he was, why do you not believe his words? Why do you not believe his testimony about me? Now, verse 34 is a very interesting insertion here. Jesus is going to break briefly from John's testimony to say this. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Why does he say this here? Well, he is appealing to the testimony of a man, the testimony of a man in defense of his claims about himself. But he absolutely does not need the testimony of men to justify himself. If God needed any man's approval or affirmation, again, he would not be God at all. If God required anyone's testimony but his own to establish his authority, he would not be God at all. For he cannot appeal to a higher truth. He cannot appeal to a more true testimony than his own about himself. He himself is truth. His word is truth. And so he does not need man to testify about him. 
And so for us, sitting here in this room, in our own minds and our own thoughts and thinking, and when we bring the message of salvation to the world, we cannot rely on or appeal to our own thinking alone or our own understanding or our own wisdom or our own mental capacity to affirm God's existence, to affirm His authority, to affirm His character, or to affirm His Word. We cannot rely on our own human minds to do this. If our tiny little smushy three-pound brains could possibly do such a thing, then we would stand in the place of God. We would be the ultimate authority on what is right and true and perfect. But in fact, it is only because He exists. It is only because of His perfection and His intellect and His power and His grace that we can comprehend or know anything at all. Anything. Any knowledge much less know anything about our almighty Creator save His own gracious desire to make Himself known to us, to illuminate our hearts and our minds and our understanding. See, the great irony of man putting God on trial is the human mind using intellect and reason and logic, things that can only exist If the unchanging, all-knowing, all-wise, and perfect God of Scripture exists, using these divinely granted abilities in order to question and accuse Him. It's nonsensical. Humans use the wonderful, immaterial, intelligent mind that God has given them to think thoughts and perceive the world around us and to experience emotions use the very same mind to put on trial the one who created it, the one who created every synapse and neuron in your squishy brain, mysteriously and wonderfully and fearfully made, the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. How highly we think of ourselves. We have been given, to some degree, dominion over this planet. We've been given the task of subduing it and multiplying and and having dominion over the earth. But let us not forget that this mind and this body come from somewhere and it is not from a sludgy goo that got struck by lightning. It is from the all-knowing and all-wise Creator, the one who made us for His own glory and His own pleasure. And so Jesus says, I don't need mortal men to testify of me. I am the self-existent one, right? His existence is presupposed. It must be presupposed. He is the beginning and the end. All things must be drawn back to a single source of beginning, and He is that source. If you remember from our last time in John, Jesus is the one who possesses life in Himself. And I am still tripping out on this from four weeks ago. I can't stop thinking about it. Jesus possesses life in Himself. He works the works of the Most High God. He raises the dead. He will judge the world. He has the power to give eternal life. So His testimony of Himself can in no way be added to by His creation, by men. He is the only witness that is above every other. 
He testifies of himself, and his testimony is true. But nevertheless, he says this, I say these things so that you may be saved. He does not appeal to John the Baptist for his own sake, as if he needed John's testimony to save himself. He appeals to John the Baptist for their sake, for our sake. He includes the testimony of men on our account that we may be saved. For we are naturally hard of hearing the voice of God, aren't we? In our natural state, that is the last thing that we want to hear. It is the last thing that we can hear. But Jesus gives the testimony of John the Baptist. He gives the testimony of his disciples. He gives the testimony of their disciples. He gives this record from John the Apostle as if his word concerning himself was not enough for us. He gives more. He appeals to us through men who were also weak and fallen as we are. How wonderful and mysterious are his ways. And to what end? Why? That we may be saved as his hearers may be saved. This is John's purpose, his very reason for writing this gospel. He says in chapter 21, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. Again, the courtroom language. John wrote this to bear witness to Jesus and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. In chapter 20, these things are written, broken record, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is awesome. Jesus comes down in every way so that we may be saved. He is gracious beyond words. He condescends to us so that we may know him and have life in him. Again, this is Christmas. He came to us. He came to us. He did not sit in heaven and say to his creation, here I am, heavenly son of God, eternally perfect with the Father and Spirit, dwelling in heavenly places which you cannot enter nor even approach. Now come and find me. Right? Now come and wake, make your way up to me. Come and ascend into heaven. By doing so, he would have surely condemned us all to destruction. But he is so gracious that he not only came down to meet us in our weakness, but he entered directly into that weakness for us. He entered into the weakness of humanity. He added human nature alongside his divine nature, which many great Preachers have called subtraction by addition. By adding humanity, by adding a human nature, he subtracted from himself his perfect existence, lacking nothing. And what did he gain? He gained temptation. He gained hunger. He gained thirst. He gained exhaustion and pain and suffering on our behalf. He was bloodied and beaten on our behalf. He was crucified and buried on our behalf, and he rose on our behalf. He came down 
to us in every single way. And He is so gracious and so kind toward us that He chose to reveal and testify of Himself through human language, through human authors, through human witnesses that we might believe and be saved. Jesus condescended so that we may ascend through Him. Right? He is the mediator between God and man. He is the ladder between earth and heaven that we could never ascend, that we could never climb. He made himself known to us in ways that are humanly comprehensible via the work of the Spirit, and he has given abundant testimony to the truth of his word. Amen? The truth of God's word. The Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, which dwelt among men, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus includes John's testimony, not for his own defense, not for his own benefit as if he needed it, but for the benefit of those who would hear and believe. And for those who would not believe, the testimony of John only adds to it, only compounds their guilt. He says in verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Ah, I just broke the cup holder. Sorry, Brother Rob, if you're watching. I got stuck in there. Leave that there. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The Father sent John the Baptist to be a lamp, a temporary source of light pointing to the light. As it is written in Psalm 132.17, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. John was not the light, as John 1 says, but came to bear witness about the light, for he was a burning and shining lamp. John's ministry was like a burning candle. It was bright and vivid for a time, but destined to burn out so that the true light would greatly shine. John was a lamp that pointed to the light of the world, the light of Christ, the light that has overcome darkness, the light that exposes evil, the light of men, the hope of the world, the light that can never burn out, the light that can never be extinguished. And many rejoiced in John's light for a little while. They came out to see the lamp. They came to see the spectacle that was John, right? Just a straight wild man coming out of the wilderness, eating strange foods. Like, who is this guy? Bringing a baptism of repentance, turn from your wicked ways. The one is coming. And he baptized, he baptized unto repentance. He said, Come, you wicked generation, and be saved. Right? One commentator writes this way He said, John's universal acclaim soon subsided. The leaders of the people fell back when they heard John's call to repentance. Publicans and harlots pressed into the kingdom before the scribes and the Pharisees. 
the generation of vipers did to John whatsoever they listed. The secular power hushed his voice and crushed the man. Right? We know that he was imprisoned and decapitated. For a season only did they listen to his word or respond to his challenge. John was a burning lamp that was snuffed out. But John's ministry was a God-ordained and prophesied and powerful witness to the coming Messiah. And many followed after him for a time. But only proved themselves to be nothing more than captivated onlookers when faced with his call to repentance. When faced with his call to look and to follow the true light that was coming, the Lamb of God, those who hid their face from the lamp that was John were blind to the light that was Jesus. God sent John to point their eyes to Christ, and the Jews shut their eyes to that light, disregarding the lamp and his testimony. So Jesus says, if you say John is a prophet, why then have you shut your eyes to the light that has come into the world? Though John specifically was called the lamp, though he was called the greatest prophet next to Jesus himself, God has graciously given many lamps, hasn't he? He's given many to point to the light of Christ. He's given many lamps that we might believe, and we must not, as the Jews did, neglect their words, neglect their testimony, and most of all, neglect the object of their illumination. Every lamp is to point to the great light that is Christ. The entirety of Scripture is full of these lamps, witnesses of God's salvation and of His promises fulfilled. And this will lead us into next week's passage where we will consider the greater witness to Christ, the greater witnesses to Christ, the Father, the Word, Jesus' own works that He did during His ministry, greater witnesses than even that of John. But as we close today, let us consider the graciousness of our God in the testimony of men. Do not neglect their words, but let them have their full effect that we might heed their words, and by doing so, heed the words of Christ. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Apart from the light of Jesus, there is only darkness, blindness, hopelessness, confusion, uncertainty. These are all the things that come with being in darkness, and we know this. We know when we've been in the dark, we stumble around, fearful that we will trip and fall, fearful of the unknown, fearful of the boogeyman coming out to snatch us, all kinds of Illogical and irrational things do our minds come up with when we are walking in darkness. But against that darkness, He, the light, the Christ, shines brighter than any light that this world knows or will ever know. He, singular, He is the light of the world. He is vision to our eyes. He is surety and hope and clarity and safety, and life. He is everything that we desire when we are in darkness, and He is all of that in Himself. 
God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, says 1 John 1. Walk in the light, my friends. Fix your eyes on the light. Behold the brightness of his glory and be transformed by the Son of God who took on flesh. He is our light. He is everything to us. He is the one and only thing that separates us from eternal darkness and contempt and condemnation and destruction. It is Christ alone and his light alone that saves us, and he has given us the wonderful testimony of men throughout all of human history that he is that light, and he has come into the world, and he has become the light of men, and now we have the great privilege of standing in that tradition. We have the privilege of standing in that lineage of lamps, a small light pointing to the great light, a, light, a lamp that we will be that will burn out one day, right? We considered this on Christmas Eve. Our days are numbered. Our time here is limited, and our lamps will burn out. But if we are in his light, we will be made into the very same image that he revealed to us, a glorified, exalted, eternal body. And he will be the light of the new world. He will be the light of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that will come down from heaven. We will no longer have need of the sun because the radiance of Jesus' glory will fill the place. He will truly be the light of all the living for eternity. And so we have the great privilege of being witnesses to that light. Amen? For the time we have seen that light, however dimly we have seen it, through the pages of Scripture, there will come a day when we will see that light fully and we will see it face to face. And because we have been raised, we will be able to see him as he is and not be destroyed. He is so gracious that he came in a form that we could see him and perceive him without being killed immediately by the brightness of his glory. But there will come a day when we will be able to see him as he is and we rejoice and we look forward to that day when we will see the light of God as he is and be transformed into his likeness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great testimony that you have left for us. We thank you that you are the sole author of life and of truth and of goodness and of justice, that all these things are found completely and perfectly in you and none else. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your truth, that you have borne witness to yourself, to your own faithfulness, that you've given testimony to your Son. And as if that were not enough, God, you've given us the testimony of so many who have gone before us to bear witness to the light of Christ, that we might know him, that we might believe on his name and be saved, be transformed, and be risen up on the last day when he returns for us. God, we thank you that you gave us this testimony, that you have borne witness to your wonderful son whom you sent. We thank you that he came 
in a form that we recognize, in a form that we can comprehend, a form like us, a lowly servant. We thank you, Father, that you have exalted him and glorified him above all things, that you've given him the name above every name, and that in that name we have life and life everlasting, and that you in your mysterious will, God, would desire to share that light with us, to glorify us, us lowly, foolish, tiny little humans, God. Such is your graciousness and your mercy and your kindness and your desire to bless in abundance that you would do such a thing for us. And we give you thanks this morning. Our lives belong to you. We've been purchased and washed by the blood of your precious Son. And we rejoice in that, God. There is no greater calling than to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. I pray that you will refresh and encourage all of our spirits in this truth, that we would walk in the light, that we would fix our eyes on our only hope, on the blessed Son, the Redeemer, the light of the world, the Lamb of God. It's in his name that we come to you. It's in his name that we pray. It's in his name that we worship you. And it's his, in his name alone that we trust and rest. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all, and I look forward to finishing John 5 with you next week. Go ye in peace.